according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again, if you would, in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 29. Isaiah chapter 29. Woe, O Ariel, Ariel, the city where David once camped. We have another of the messages of woe. We introduced these last week in uh, chapter 28, that we have a segment here within the book of Isaiah that features six of these uh, particular woes, and uh, we saw the first of them. Really, it was a two-parter in chapter 28, focusing on the northern kingdom of Israel, and then by the end of the chapter, we had moved south to also address uh, Jerusalem, to address the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, Today is also Judah in view, but it's eschatological Judah. We want to understand what is in view when we talk about Ariel, and what is the significance of the title Ariel, and uh, the application there. And so we'll spend some time with that here this morning. Not as long as we would like. We'd like to stop and take a month just to teach the doctrine of Ariel, but we can't do that. And uh, the format we have is we're in chapter 29 this week, and next week, um, come hell or high water, did I say that? We're going to be in chapter 30, chapter 31 the week after that, chapter 32 the week after that. God has been bringing us through this book, chapter by chapter, week by week. The goal is to get the big picture, all right? Sometimes we spend so much time, we lose the forest through the trees. We we spend so much time in the detail of an individual tree or a branch or a leaf, and uh, we forget that there's a whole forest there of the scriptures. And this is the hour that we give the big picture. You get the big picture for Isaiah followed by Jeremiah in uh, the process of, uh, of this. All right, so let's take time for silent prayer. Let's, before we start, let's ask the Father to sanctify our thinking, to set aside distractions, and to humble us under the authority of His truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, it is again our grace provision, your grace provision to us that we can assemble here today. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your grace. We acknowledge that we do not earn or deserve to even be instructed in such a manner. Who are we, Father, that you should disclose yourself to us? That, Father, even your your, uh, eternal purpose, the mystery of your will, Father, has been made known to the church in ways that any other stewardship has, no other stewardship has ever received the, the blessings that we have. I thank you for a Greek canon to be added to the Hebrew canon. I thank you for gifted pastors. I thank you for all of what you do, Father, to lead us into the truth, even the deep things of God. So we call upon your faithfulness once again this hour. Father, we're going to deal with some things in this chapter. We need the eyes of our understanding opened. Humble us to receive the word implanted. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we have here the second of these six woes that were uh, being addressed in this portion. From chapter 28 to, I think, about chapter 35 or so is where we have uh, these six woes that are presented to, mostly to the southern nation. The the northern nation is going to be swept away. The northern kingdom of Israel gets swept away in very short order. Most of the woes are directed towards the south. And that's what we have here. The second of these six woes is addressed to Ariel, 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 Ariel. And in case uh, you lose the impact of that, five times we have the term that's used here in these early verses, five times we have the term that's used here, and very seldom is it it used anywhere else in the Old Testament. In fact, so seldom we wonder if it's really the same term, because we have some cognate forms, we have some related forms uh, as it refers to lions or to uh, the Lion of God, or as it refers to an altar or an altar hearth in the book of Ezekiel, in the Millennial Temple, and so forth. And there is large um, debate amongst even the rabbis themselves as to what this term means and what this term is uh, significant of. There's no question it addresses Jerusalem. It addresses the city that David once camped against. And why does he rephrase it that way? There's There's no shortage of ways that we can illustrate Jerusalem. We can illustrate Jerusalem as the city where Solomon built his temple or the city where, you know, any number of things happened. There's no shortage of things you can illustrate with. 
But what happens here is we have Ariel, the city that David once camped against. And that becomes significant because what we're looking forward to is a city that the son of David is going to camp against. And we're told that in these early verses, that Ariel is the city under siege. Ariel is the city that should be the blessing blessed by the Lord, and instead it is being attacked by the Lord to prepare it for the second advent of Jesus Christ. And that's really what we get to when we work our way through these verses. So let's pick up on it. Uh, between verse 1, verse 2, and verse 7, we have the repeated use of the term, <clears throat> Woe, O Ariel, Ariel, the city where David once camped. Add year to year, observe your feasts on schedule. In other words, there aren't going to be many more of them, so count them while you got them. I will bring distress to Ariel, and she will be a city of lamenting and mourning, and she will be like an Ariel to me. Of all the uses of Ariel in this passage, this is the best one to give us the context to understand the meaning for what he's dealing with here. She will be like an Ariel to me. I will camp against you, encircling you, and I will set siege works against you, and I will raise up battle towers against you. Then you will be brought low. From the earth you will speak. From the dust where you are prostrate, your words will come. It is a time of tremendous humiliation, and it requires that kind of humiliation in order for Israel to have the repentance necessary for the second advent of Jesus Christ. Uh, The rest of verse 4 here, it says, Your words will come, your voice will also be like that of a spirit from the ground. Why does it go there? Why does it talk about the departed spirits or the spirits from the ground? And your speech will whisper from the dust. But the multitude of your enemies will become like fine dust, and the multitude of the ruthless ones, who are they? Like the chaff which blows away, and it will happen instantly, suddenly. From the Lord of hosts you will be punished with thunder and earthquake and loud noise, with whirlwind and tempest, a flame of a consuming fire. And the multitude of all the nations who wage war against Ariel, even all who wage war against her and her stronghold, and who distress her, will be like a dream, a vision of the night. All right. Um, I'm going to read down through verse 10 before we stop and and get some points of study on this. Okay, But it's through verse 7 there that we have the last, the fifth of our five uses of, uh, of Ariel. In any event, he's going, to, he's going to deal with these nations and they will be like a dream, a vision in the night. It will be as when a hungry man dreams and behold, he is eating. In fact, he's got the greatest dream imaginable. He's feasting, he's eating, he's having all the, all the pluckers imaginable. But, but when he wakes up, what has he done? When he wakes up, has he fed himself? No, he's actually still hungry. He's worse because he didn't do any eating at all. Uh, So when he awakens, his hunger is not satisfied. Or as when a thirsty man dreams, behold, he is drinking. But when he awakens, behold, he is faint and his thirst is not quenched. Thus, the multitude of all the nations will be who wage war against Mount Zion. And we'll discuss that. We'll talk about the nature of the satanic delusion during the tribulation of Israel and how all the nations following after Satan and Antichrist and the whole plan and program there that's unfolding, they think they're accomplishing a tremendous amount. But when Jesus Christ brings an end to it, it will be like what's described here. Waking up from a dream. Waking up from their satanic stupor and realizing we haven't accomplished anything. <laughs> right? In fact, worse than that, we're doomed. Jesus Christ has now returned at second advent. He's bringing in the, uh, the millennial kingdom. Well, that's what you get for going to war against Mount Zion. Then verse 9, be delayed and wait. Oh, I don't want to do that. Who wants to be delayed? Who wants to wait for anything? If you know it's going to happen, then get it done now. What's the purpose in delaying? Well, God is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness. All right, but He's patient toward you. Remember that. Remember, with the Lord, a day is as a thousand years, a thousand years as a day. Don't be so impatient that you lose track of God's timetable. Blind yourselves and be blind. They become drunk, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured over you a spirit of deep sleep, He has shut your eyes, the prophets. He has covered your heads, the seers. All right. We'll stop there. All right. Context, details, everything that's going to be happening here, what we're looking at in this chapter. We're talking about Ariel. Ariel, 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 Ariel. 
Clearly, it is a reference to Jerusalem. And we can take the easy answer and say, well, this is Lion of God, all right? Because that's Arnold Fruchtenbaum and Ariel Ministries, and we, we get that. We know the vocabulary, R-E, we know the vocabulary for a lion. It's one of about six different words for lion. There's a lot of words for lion in the Hebrew. Um, Ari is one of them. And if you attach L to the end of Ari, then you've got R-E-L. You've got Lion of God. That's a great etymology for the, uh, for the term. But there are other etymologies for the term as well. The Ari can be a lot of different things depending on how the vowel pointing goes and depending on how you understand the Ari. And the Targums did a lot of different things with this. And the rabbis did a lot of different things with this. And we want to understand what it is. It's pretty enigmatic. Clearly it's a reference to Jerusalem, but it's enigmatic as a title. You stop and ask yourself, why are you calling me this? <laughs> okay, Like we did in chapter 1 when God called Israel Sodom and Gomorrah. All right, That's name calling that gets your attention. And you wake up and you say, why are you calling me Sodom and Gomorrah? That can't be good news. All right, I know what happened to them. You're calling me Sodom and Gomorrah? I, I, I don't think I like where this message is going. All right. Similar with Ariel. Why are you calling me Ariel? What does that signify? Ariel. There are other names that Israel will be known by. Names that they'll be known by for blessing. Names that they'll be known by for uh, eternity when Jesus Christ dwells among us as, as you know, Jehovah Tzedkenu, the Lord our righteousness, and many other titles and blessings for Israel under blessing. What's the significance of Ariel? If it's, a, if it's a mighty lion, a lion of God, we can kind of think that's a good thing, right? Because Jesus is the lion from the tribe of Judah and we can think of lions in a good way with victory and majesty and we can sing uh, victory in Jesus and get all riled up and excited about things. Or the idea of a furnace, the idea of an altar hearth, that paints a different picture. A furnace is where a fire gets lit. An altar hearth is where sacrifices die. Uh, this is where judgment takes place. All right, And that's what we have here in the context of this passage anyway, is God's judgment. We have His hand upon Jerusalem, and Jerusalem becomes the furnace. And it becomes the place where He Himself is bringing the sacrifice. And He Himself is accomplishing His good pleasure. And that's what we're going to see. In fact, We've got a, uh, a better sense, understanding of this, over in Ezekiel 43, verses 15 and 16. And as long as I have my toys here, I might as well look at it, right? Ezekiel 23, verses 15 and 16. I am using a loner machine. And I'm getting used to it. <laughs> kind of. Of course, I don't want a Greek text. What's that going to do for me in Ezekiel? I want a Hebrew text. All right. And, wouldn't you know it? I got the wrong reference. It's Ezekiel 43. Ezekiel 43, verses 15 and 16. 43. Okay, I had it right. Ezekiel 43, verses 15 and 16. See how much time we save by doing it this way? All right. In the grand tour that Ezekiel has provided, I believe he's brought forward through space and time. I believe he's taken out of his body and spiritually he's brought into the millennial kingdom. And he takes measurements of the, of the temple and he sees all these operations. And in a part of seeing the layout of the outer court, the inner court, the holy place, the most holy place, he measures it all. And this is what he sees at the altar. It's called an ariel. All right? And, when, when, and the tabernacle, it wasn't called that. In Solomon's temple, it wasn't called that. But in Ezekiel's temple, this is the name it's given. The altar hearth, or the ariel, shall be four cubits. And from the ariel, there shall extend upward four horns. Now the ariel shall be 12 cubits long by 12 wide, square on its four sides. That's a pretty big altar hearth. All right? That's, you know, that's a... That's a monster barbecue pit that would make any Texan proud for a wedding reception or any other use. Okay, so much so you need you know stairs going up to it, and uh, and this the ledge 
shall be 14 cubits long by 14 wide and its four sides. The border around it shall be half a cubit. Its base shall be a cubit roundabout and its steps shall face the east. So you know what direction you're approaching as you ascend to the, uh, to the ledge, as you ascend to the altar hearth. All right, this is where the meat gets cooked. Okay, and I think that's the best context to come back now into. It's a prophetic context. It's, it's Ezekiel is a much better context than going back to Deuteronomy or going back to David's mighty man or some guy that goes and kills a lion in a pit on a snowy day kind of a thing. Uh, there are other pa- passages where we can look for etymological assistance, but the context of Isaiah 29 is judgment. It's the place where the meat's getting cooked. It's a place where the sacrifice is being offered. And Jesus Christ Himself is the one that brings the sacrifice. And that's consistent with other Second Advent passages in our prophetic studies for Israel's future. So I believe we're dealing here with an altar hearth. And that's the better sense. Oh, altar hearth, altar hearth. And this is what God is bringing about as Israel has rejected their Messiah in first advent and they're going to require the altar hearth wrath of God for him to come back at second advent. That's what the purpose is for the delay. That's what the purpose is for the blindedness. The purpose is to put the plan of Israel on hold while it calls out the church, neither Jew nor Gentile, in the bride of Christ as we understand it today. David's encampment is contrasted with the Lord's encampment against Jerusalem. All right? David's encampment is contrasted with the Lord's encampment against Jerusalem. And that becomes significant. When he says, Ariel, Ariel, woe, O Ariel, the city where David once camped, that gets our attention because there's more camping in this chapter. And it's not Boy Scout camping for recreation. We're talking military campment for uh, the siege warfare of the ancient world. All right? And the Lord himself is going to camp against you. Same term there in verse 3. Now there's a lot of times in Israel's history where God will assign Gentile nations to afflict his people. He will assign the Assyrians to afflict the northern kingdom. He will assign the Babylonians to afflict the southern kingdom. He will assign different countries to oppress them at different times, the Philistines and, and so forth. But unique to all of that is when he himself leads the armies. When he himself leads, as he will do in the tribulation of Israel, he himself is going to the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sivayoth. He himself is going to be leading Antichrist and the armies against Jerusalem. And that might shock us at first, the first time or two times or three times we hear it, But we keep coming across passages like this. Passages like here, passages like back in chapter 5, passages in the book of Joel. When you read about the locust invasion in the book of Joel and you realize, wow, those aren't just insects. (laughs) Okay, There's some real demons going on here. There's some some, uh, big time armies going on here and it's the Lord of hosts that's leading them too. You realize, wow, God hasn't just handed Israel over to the Gentile nations, he is leading the attack himself. God himself is disciplining his own children in the time of Jacob's trouble. That's why there's never been a day like it. And then there never will be a day like it ever again. It's unique in human history. So David's encampment. If you want more on this, I recommend 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1-10. through 10. Um, You can spend some time with that. I don't know that... Um, well, we can, now that I know what I'm doing, we can get there fairly quickly. Second Samuel 5, verses 1 through 10. You might recall, after the death of Saul, David was not immediately chosen to be the king over everybody. In fact, David only received support from his own tribe. It was only the tribe of Judah that acknowledged that David was the heir, that David was anointed by, Saul, uh, by Samuel. David was entitled to be the next king. And the other 11 tribes rejected that. The other 11 tribes said, hey, we want to go ahead and make uh, the son of Saul our next king. And uh, that's what other nations do. When, when the king dies, his son gets to be the next king. That's how it works, right? That's how it works for the Gentile nations. Well, no, God anointed David to be the next king after Saul. 
And yet David in his humility waited for God to place him in that way. And so for the first seven years, all he had was a single tribe. He reigned over the southern tribe of Judah. He had a, he had a throne in Hebron, and that's all he had, all right? It was the single tribe of Judah. Seven years later, he'll receive the other tribes, and he'll become king over all of Israel. And, and it's on that occasion that David says, all right now, new, new uh, reign, let's move the capital. It won't be Hebron anymore. And this is where he goes and he attacks Jerusalem. And so this is the context here. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and your flesh. Previously, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and in. You know, we know every, every big victory Saul had was pretty much your victory, you know, thanks to you. Um, and so they acknowledged this. And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel. You will be ruler over Israel. So we are confessing what we've known all along is that Yahweh appointed you to be our new king. And we've just been living in rebellion the last seven years. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them before the Lord at Hebron, and they anointed David a king over Israel. He was 33 years, no, 30 years old when he became king, reigned for 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned seven uh, over Judah, seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. Now, I'm, I'm showing you this not just for today, okay? I'm showing you this because I believe this has ramifications down the road, all right? There is ramifications over when in the future Jesus Christ will have a limited reign as the son of David. He will have finite boundaries over uh, Israel and the millennial kingdom as the son of David on the throne of David. But he will have an even greater reign in the new heavens and the new earth where he will not be limited to the throne of David with the Abrahamic land grant. He will have the entire boundaries of the new earth. As it says in Psalm 2, Ask of me, and I will surely give you the ends of the earth, the nations as your inheritance, the very ends of the earth as your possession. Jesus has a greater reward He's waiting for, larger than simply the throne of David and the, and the boundary of Israel in the Millennial Kingdom. All right? So there's a smaller reign that starts, He starts with, and there's a much larger reign that He is granted after that. David's the foreshadowing of that, the typology for that. All right? And that's uh, probably more than you wanted to know today. Just keep it in mind for down the road. There is more to do after the millennium. There's more to do in the new heavens and on the new earth. There are, the millennium's only a thousand years, okay? Only a thousand years. Because by the time we get there, we're going to be like God, resurrected, glorified, and a thousand years will be just like a day. A day like a thousand years. What happens in the new earth? Not just a thousand years of feigned obedience and difficult uh, iron scepter ruling. We're going to see a thousand generations of those who love Jesus Christ that will glorify Him for a thousand generations on the new earth. Different uh, applications there. Anyway, so he's now uh, being expanded from Hebron only. So the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites. This was a, a city was not conquered during uh, Joshua's conquest. It was a city where Melchizedek reigned during Abraham's lifetime. Here's the Jebusites, inhabitants of the land. And they said to David, you shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will turn you away. And this is their bragging. We're so well defended, we can, we can put the blind people up on our walls. We can put cripples up on our walls. And we're not afraid of your soldiers at all. All right? That's their taunt. That the blind and the lame will turn you away. They thought they were invincible. Well, nevertheless, David conquered the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David, and uh, offers a prize here. said, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him reach the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul through the water tunnel. And so that was the plan of attack, and there they went. Anyway, there's more detail on that, but if I get lost in battles and swords and dragons and people dying, then I'm just going to lose track of the whole message. We're going to get back to Isaiah. David's encampment, it is contrasted with the Lord's encampment against Jerusalem. And clearly, Yahweh is the one that is camping. I will camp against you, encircling you, in verse 3. And this uh, we, we touched on back in chapter 5. I don't know if you recall or not, but in chapter 5, we pointed out that it is the Lord himself that is disciplining his people in a second advent context, in a tribulation context for Israel's eschatological future. Isaiah 5, verses 26 and following. 
He will also lift up a standard of the distant nation, will whistle for it from the ends of the earth. Behold, it will come with speed swiftly. No one it is weary or stumbles. No one slumbers or sleeps. You know, that's, that's a hard army to defeat if they're not sleeping, if they don't get tired. You know, after you're wheeling your sword around and wheeling your shield around and, you know, you get tired after a while. These guys don't get tired. We also saw in Joel chapter 2 the nature of the Lord in leading this attack. In Joel chapter 2, verses 1 through 17, The day of the Lord is coming, surely it is near, a day of darkness and gloom. There has never been anything like it. You see that in verse 2? Nor will there ever be again after it to the years of many generations. And you see, it's the Lord Himself that leads. Here's these, uh, these uh, locusts that are coming. And they're not regular insects, let me tell you that. The Lord, notice in verse 11, it's Yahweh who utters His voice before His army. Surely His camp is very great. Strong is He who carries out His word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. Who can endure it? It's Yahweh Himself that's leading these, these uh, locusts in, uh, in Joel chapter 2. So this is the parallel of what we're dealing with here. We're looking eschatologically. Ariel does indeed address Jerusalem, but it addresses Jerusalem eschatologically as the hearth, the fire hearth, the altar hearth where the sacrifice is being consumed. And they find out very quickly that they are the sacrifice, all right? That they will be consumed in the wrath of God at the second advent of Jesus Christ. Eschatological confusion arises at every side. I like this. In verses 7 through 14, eschatological confusion arises on every side. And it's tough. It is absolutely tough for Israel to understand this. They are blinded. They, uh, they are um, in confusion over why. If they're God's chosen people, why are they under such wrath? There's going to be confusion by those that attack them. There's going to be confusion by they themselves. I already read these early verses, 7 through... Where did I stop? I stopped in verse 10. There's confusion there on the part of those that are participating in the warfare. The Gentiles arrive and they think everything is going just peachy as far as they know until they wake up and realize, man, this, this, this dream is over. We, we haven't done anything. We haven't eaten. We haven't drunk. We haven't done anything. And they... They realize that uh, that they themselves have been brought to this furnace. They themselves have been brought to this fire altar, this hearth. And they themselves are going to, God's going to be done with them at this point. But even those that are being besieged in the city, does Israel have a perspective to understand this? Why is Israel so blinded? Well, what did we see last week? Because they're rejecting truth, because they're mocking the prophets, they think it's just a bunch of prophets treating them like babies. They are ignoring the warnings from God. And having ignored the warnings from God, they are rendered dull of hearing. They go backwards. They stumble backwards. They're broken. They're taken captive. All right? They are under judgment, and they don't understand that they're under judgment. It's interesting to see this description here in verse 11. The entire vision will be to you like the words of a sealed book. <laughs> you ever read a sealed book? All right. I know you haven't because you can't until you break the seal, at which point now it's an unsealed book. Maybe you read a formerly sealed book, but nobody has read a sealed book because it's sealed. All right. And then if it's sealed plus you're illiterate to begin with, now you're doubly stuck out there, right? What are you going to do at that point? And this is where Israel is today, all right? In the partial hardening that has come to Israel, and the outworking of the plan of God by placing Israel under a partial hardening, by sealing their prophets, by putting the stewardship of Israel on hold and calling out a body of Christ that is the church, neither Jew nor Gentile. And so it's interesting. The... Verse 11 says, The entire vision will be to you like words of a sealed book, which when they give it to the one who is literate, saying, Please read this, he will say, I cannot, for it is sealed. Okay? 
And you might think of this in terms of Israel, allegorically or metaphorically, if you want to take this as a, as a picture, giving it to the one who is literate. Well, they're the ones, at that point, all the scripture was Hebrew scriptures. The whole canon was a Hebrew canon. And then he seals it up. And then you give it to one who is illiterate. The book will be given to one who is illiterate, verse 12, saying, please read this. And he will say, I cannot read. All right, I cannot read. And so how in the world does a passage like this find any kind of fulfillment? How in the world, what does this signify? What is the content that's being taught in a passage such as this? How do we go from illiterate Jewish people in a highly structured, written-based faith like Judaism of the Old Testament to a bunch of Gentiles, a bunch of barbarians, a bunch of stammering lips and foreign tongues that we were dealing with last week in chapter 28. Would you expect those kind of guys to go forth and transform the world the way biblical Christianity has done for the last 2,000 years? All right. I find it interesting. So, what are we looking at? The nations warring against Ariel will operate in a dreamlike unreality. In a dreamlike unreality. (laughs) You know? We see previews of this today. I see everything, every political movement today operating in opposition to the plan of God, dreaming of this utopia they want to bring into play, perfect environment and perfect this and all this other stuff, and every, every dream of Satan that all the, the, the perpetually outraged are, are marching for today, and what are they really trying to bring about? And imagine, imagine after the rapture when God removes all restraint and the Antichrist is free to put in place any plan he wants, any plan, any program, his own kingdom, his own world government, his own world economy, his own world peace, everything is just, you know, we'll be scraping the bumper stickers off their cars because who needs to visualize world peace anymore? We've got the dragon and his beast and the whole world is just totally amazed. We're now living in the age of Aquarius or whatever they want to call it when, when they get there, okay? And yet... There's nothing real. There's nothing real. It's not real now when they're dreaming of a future utopia. The point of utopia is it's nowhere. It does not exist. It cannot exist. Perfection will come when Christ comes. Perfection will come when God makes it happen. And not apart from that. So the nations warring against Israel, they will operate in a dreamlike unreality. The Jews will be blinded to their own prophetic insight. The Jews will be blinded to their own prophetic insight. We're talking about the population as a whole until those who have insight will shine forth. There will be 144,000 Jewish evangelists and they will start to minister during this time of darkness. And they will start to bear fruit. And there will be a remnant, those who will see the truth for what it is. And they will not accept the mark of the beast. And they will not go along with Satan's program in the tribulation. And they will be rescued from the wrath that this chapter is talking about. They're going to escape from the fire hearth. They're going to bail out of Ariel as quick as they can. Because they're going to pay heed to the warning that says, when you see the abomination of desolation, run. Run now. Run. Don't, don't, don't pass go to not collect $200. Run. All right? Don't go back into your house to get a cloak or anything. Run. The Jews will be blinded to their own prophetic insight. We have the description of it here. All right. I got down through verse 12, right? Verse 13 says, uh, Then the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me, and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. This is modern day Judaism. All right, there's no reality to it, but there's a whole lot of tradition. There's a whole lot of lip service. It was also, by the way, Phariseeism during the life of Christ. Therefore, behold, I will once again deal marvelously with this people. Wondrously marvelous. Once again. Now, I understand the first time he dealt marvelously is when a virgin conceived and bore a son. 
And he died on the cross. His first advent was marvelous. Once again, he's going to deal marvelously with his people. But it's not going to be with the humble virgin-born son. It's going to be with the victorious king of kings and lord of lords riding on the white horse coming to defeat all evil in his way. The wisdom of their wise men will perish. The discernment of their discerning men will be concealed. The Jews will be blinded to their own prophetic insight. In fact, Daniel was frustrated with this a bit in Daniel chapter 12, verses 3 and 4. You'll note, as the context of chapter 12 begins, it is unique in human history. Michael, the great prince, he arises in this time of distress. The archangel Michael will rise to defend Israel, the remnant of Israel. Because it's a time of distress which has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone found written in the book, will be rescued. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. There's going to be a resurrection associated with the second advent of Jesus Christ. These to everlasting life. But others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. After the thousand years, they have to get resurrected to stand to the great white throne. Notice though verse 3. Those who have insight. Well, who's that going to be? Alright? Because the bulk of the population is going to be blinded. But those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. What a promise, all right? Because as we see in Revelation, the 144,000, the Jewish evangelists, they are sealed, they are protected, they are not harmed by Antichrist or the mark of the beast. And they are going to have a revival like nothing this world has ever seen. Unique, unparalleled tribulation is matched up with unique, unparalleled revival. All right? Gospel uh, uh, acceptance. Revival like has never happened before. Similar, I mean, we know how church history goes, right? Those early centuries with the, the maximum persecution. What did that produce? Maximum church growth. I think we probably need a little bit more these days. Some, get some church persecution so we can get serious about our, our real walk. Well, the tribulation is going to be unlike anything this planet has ever observed. But as for you, Daniel, this is how the Lord instructs Daniel to bring the book of Daniel to a close. Chapter 12 is the final chapter of this book. He says, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Things that Daniel was not even permitted to write about. Conceal these words. So the text of which is not recorded in Daniel chapter 12. You want me to tell you what they were? I can't tell you what they were. They were concealed. Nobody knows. I don't know. Somebody tells you they know, they're lying to you. Trying to make money selling a book or something. Seal up the book until the end time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. What a prophecy. You know, you realize we live in it, this many will go back and forth, knowledge will increase. People are so excited about the 21st century. And I admit, transportation and communication, uh, we've never had anything like it. This is the pinnacle of where we've been is that we, so far as we know. You know, I can, I can be around the globe in, within a 24-hour span of time. And the communication we share over the Internet and the information, the knowledge that increases, we've never seen anything like it, but the tribulation will be even more so. And specifically because we will have, new ta- we will have Hebrew prophets again unsealing this book. We'll have Hebrew prophets again encouraging Israel with this kind of insight with this kind of insight. All right? Jesus dealt with this in Mark 7. Talking about how blind these Pharisees were. And he said, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. This is when he's in conflict with the Pharisees and they're all mad because his disciples don't follow all their religion. They don't follow all their purification rituals and all the stuff before they eat and all these other things. And Jesus said, man, Isaiah was talking about you guys. All right. So the nations are going to be operating in a dreamlight unreality. The Jews are going to be blinded to their own prophetic insight. 
The educated are going to find the book is sealed and the uneducated are going to plead ignorance. All right? They're going to plead ignorance. They're going to say, well, we can't read. It's not our fault. And how easy is it just to plead ignorance and say, well, I didn't know. can't read that. I can't read anything. I love the contrast the New Testament features in the first advent of Jesus Christ. And I believe it will be featured again in the second advent of Jesus Christ. These rabbis that will have the insight we're talking about, these prophets, these tribulational prophets, these 144,000 Jewish evangelists, they're not going to be graduates of, of, uh, of a Hebrew University on Mount Scopus. All right? They're not going to be graduates of Oxford and Harvard and all the leading educational institutions of the day. Because this is the contrast that Jesus Christ introduced. He himself exhibited it. His disciples followed that pattern. The first advent of Jesus Christ featured this. Acts 7.15. Here's the, the Pharisees all amazed. Are you familiar with this? They were shocked. Not Acts. John. Thank you. I knew that. They need to invent a tablet that fixes my typos. <laughs> you know, I'm typing in Acts and the laptop's smarter than me and says, you, you want John. Logos almost gets there, but not quite. You know, here's Jesus. He's teaching in the synagogue. He's teaching in the temple. And the Jews then were astonished, saying, how has this man become learned having never been educated? Right? How is this illiterate moron, what's he doing? How has he become learned having never been educated? What they mean by that is he didn't go to our schools. All right, He didn't sit at the feet of Gamaliel. He wasn't of the school of Hillel or the school of Shammai. He's not on the approved list. And even if we think our Ivy League school is better than your Ivy League school, at least... We're both Ivy League school, all right? And so we know we're better than the others, okay? You know, Sarah Palin wasn't even educated because she went to a public university in Idaho. I mean, that doesn't count for anything, all right? Because if you're not Ivy League, what are you? Or in a Pharisee context, if you're not the school of Hillel or the school of Shammai, what are you? How has this man become learned having never been educated? I think Joseph was a true hero. Joseph homeschooled him. Joseph and Mary brought him up. By the age of 12, he's already dazzling the, the uh, Pharisees in the, in the temple. Where did he learn all that doctrine? Yeah, he didn't learn it because he's God and he's omniscient. He learned it because as a human, he grew up and his parents taught him. Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. This, by the way, is the pattern for the, that's the book of Acts reference, the pattern for the apostles in Acts 4.13. Acts 4.13. You know, they have them under arrest. They're threatening them. They're, they're standing up and declaring the, the mighty things of God. And as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men. Now, that's not true. But as far as they're concerned, it's true. They were very educated. They were very trained. They'd spent three and a half years with Jesus Christ. <laughs> they had the best training imaginable, training you and I would just drool over. Man, I get to live with Jesus for three and a half years? All right. As they saw their confidence and understood they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. This is the verse that defines our seminary here at Austin Bible Church. That's why sometimes I call it a grammatos. the vocabulary here. It's unlettered. All right, literally unlettered. You know, Pastor Cliff Beveridge graduated. He got his ordination. He went and he started a church, but he is unlettered. He didn't get to add PhD after his name because of the training he received here. You train here, you're going to be unlettered. But they're going to recognize that you've been with Jesus. They're going to recognize that you know the truth, that you teach, you feed the flock. And that's the pattern that we have. All right. Is this also going to be the reality in the second advent? I think so. I think when we talk about the sealed book to the literate and the, uh, the illiterate 
in an eschatological context of the tribulation, who is it in Daniel 12.3 that's going to shine forth with that insight? All right? Going to shine forth with the insight. I don't believe it's going to be the, the highly educated from the, the accepted schools at Hebrew University. All right? I think they're going to be following the tribe of Dan and going with the, with the false prophet and serving the Antichrist. But the remnant, okay, the 144,000, you know, Dan's excluded from those 12 tribes. The 144,000, they're the ones that are going to have the insight. All right, the third of the six woes, verses 15 through 21. The third of these six woes. You can either take it down through verse 21 or you can take it down through verse 24. You can decide what you're going to do with verses 22 through 24. If it belongs in this chapter, if it belongs in the next, if it's better connected to what precedes it or is it better connected to what follows, should it serve as a bridge or a transition? What are we going to do with with those verses? Well, we're not going to do anything with those verses today. We're going to do our best to get down through verse 21 today. All right? Again, chapter by chapter, move on. But there's, there's some meat there that we should spend some time with. But here we go. We've got to get angelic for the second part of this chapter. The third of these six woes is addressed to the world forces of darkness. The third of these six woes is addressed to the world forces of darkness. And we have a shift, what I call prophetic shift, as per Isaiah 14, as per Ezekiel 28, as per Jeremiah chapter 4, as per several places in the Old Testament, whereby we stop our view in the human realm and we realize there's a bigger picture at work here. Daniel chapter 10, there's a prince of Greece that's coming. He's going to attack the prince of Persia. And we we learn very quickly, wait a minute, those aren't human beings. Those are angels. All right, Because one of those, the prince of Persia, had captured Gabriel. And we go, wow, human being isn't going to be capturing Gabriel. How does this happen? How is it that Gabriel's delayed 21 days and kept in an angelic prison? Right? Here we have a prophetic shift in verse 15 and following. What are those who deeply hide their plans from the Lord, whose deeds are done in a dark place? And they say, who sees us or who knows us? You turn these things around. All right. And this is the rebellion of the fallen angelic realm. This is the rebellion of Satan who has a plan, who believes that his plan is a viable alternative to the Father's plan. And that he assigns many of these things to the Father himself. You turn these things around. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? How does a creature allege uncreated status? How does a creature stand and declare, I will be like the Most High God? If you are a creature, it's already too late. If you are a creature, then you are a finite being. You have been created, right? You are a creature. You have been created. You are a having been created one. And however old you might be, there was a day in which you were created. And God reminds Satan of that in Ezekiel 28. He said, you used to be perfect on the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. All right? And so to be a finite creature with a beginning and then to declare boldly, I will be like I am. The unique, one and only, self-existent being of the universe. God Himself, without beginning, without end. The only eternal being without a beginning is God Himself. So if, if that's what you say you want to become, well, by definition, you cannot become something that is without a becoming. All right, God Himself is the eternal. He's not the I became. He is the I am. And so for any creature to try to claim this is by definition insane. Dealing in a realm of unreality. And he gets rebuked here. You turn things around. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay that what is made would say to its maker, He did not make me. He did not make me. See, I believe Satan thinks God's a liar. Satan doesn't believe the I am messages. Satan doesn't believe that God has always been. All Satan believes is God was here before him. 
And he doesn't believe anything he has to say. You're just a liar. Why does he think God's a liar? Because liars think liars are liars, right? Any liar doesn't trust anybody. Why would they trust anybody? They themselves are a liar. You know, when your older brother tells you that the police left you on the porch, right? Say, I remember. Yeah, I remember. Mom's not your mom. The police just left you on the front porch and we felt sorry for you. And, you know, that might be a little unsettling at first until you realize, wait a minute, you're lying to me. That's not right. Okay? God created Satan. God created all the angels. Revealed himself as the uncreated, self-existent I am. Loaner equipment, I don't know what that is. That's a calendar. Birthday notices. Never mind. All right. He does not believe in the I am. He does not believe. He believes, I think, because he assigns the same kind of diabolical deceiviousness to God that he himself operates. He believes that God killed everybody he killed and recreated the universe in his own image. Because that's what Satan wants to do. That's what he intends to do. He will be like the Most High God when he proves that God is the same liar that he is. That's why he keeps trying to break the Scriptures. Keeps trying to prove God is a liar. If he can kill the Jews, then he can point to God and say, you're a liar. There are no more Jews and you made promises to the Jews. And if he can make God... See, there's two ways you can be like somebody. You can either change yourself so you're like them, or you can change them so they're like you. And if he can prove God a liar, he wins. At least in his twisted, satanic way, he wins, or he thinks he wins, if he can prove God a liar. So we've got the invisible realm here we're looking at. We under, also understand them from Ephesians 6.12, the rulers and authorities, the principalities and the power. We understand from Ezekiel 8 and verse 12, another prophetic shift looking at the invisible world of existence. So we've got to see the connection here with Lebanon, the connection here with gloom, the ruthless and the terminology there. For the ruthless and the scorner in verse 20, there's some terminology for you. The uh, snares that happen here. Why is he so why is he so dedicated to pervert justice? Well, because he hates the God of justice. He hates the God of truth. When you notice in verse 21, who causes a person to be indicted by a word for some to, That's why our legal system actually, you, you don't, you're not forced to testify against yourself. You are protected against that, at least theoretically. By design, the founding fathers wrote that in against self-incrimination. That, that doesn't really bother Satan. He ensnares him who adjudicates at the gate, defrauds the one and the right with meaningless arguments. Man, I think we're reading about current events here, aren't we? Well, what do we have? These forces of darkness are created beings who strive to deny their own creature status. They're going to be rebuked again in chapter 45. In fact, it gets loud and clear in that chapter. These forces of darkness are created beings who strive to deny their own creature status and who strive to claim the stature of God. They remold this world in their image by their standards. They even reward those that serve them in this day and age. There's a lot of satanic reward out there for those who want to deny the Lord God and serve Satan. You bet there's satanic advancement, satanic promotion every step of the way. Isaiah 45. That's a fun one because there's, there's so much. In Isaiah 45, there's... Uh, well, there is some taunting that takes place. There's some taunting that occurs here. Isaiah 45, 9-13. Even some... Uh, invitations... When he goes ahead and he allows them to work together on the project because none of them can do what he does. So he just teases them and he, he invites all of Satan and all the other fallen angels. He says, go ahead, you guys. 
team up on this. All right? Because I am who I am and there is no other. Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker. In earthenware vessels among the vessels of earth. Will the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? Or the thing you are making say, he has no hands. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, to what are you giving birth? The whole point is, if you are an offspring, you don't tell the parents what they're doing. Right? You didn't ask for the parents you ended up with. It's the way it goes. You got the parents God gave you. Because God put you there in that regard. All right. Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and His Maker, ask me, oh, I love this, in Isaiah 45, 11, ask me about the things to come concerning my sons, and you shall commit to me the work of my hands. It is I who made the earth and created man upon it. You guys didn't do that. You guys didn't do that. You fallen angels didn't do that. I did that. Ask me how I did that. I ordained the heavens with my hands. I ordained all their hosts. That's you guys. He's, he's rebuking these hosts of heaven. I have aroused him in righteousness. I will make his way smooth. I, he will build my city. I will let my exiles go free. Anyway, there's, there's more on this. Surely God is with you. There is no one else. There is no other God. Down to verse 18. I am the one who did all this. I am the Lord. There is none else. I have not spoken in secret in some dark land. See, that's our connection with this, with, with our chapter today. That's our connection with the fallen angels is this secret darkness and how they operate in their realms. Gather yourselves together and come. He invites them. Let the nations come. Let them bring their idols. They're just stupid idols. They don't know anything. What can they do? You know, an idol can't even move from room to room. If an idol has to go from this room to that room, the idol needs a human being to carry it around. Yeah, that's a real impressive God. Okay? Oh, there's so much more here. Well, I'm running out of time. The adversary's activity of blinding minds is going to come to an end. Okay? We see it here in Isaiah 29.18. We know this is what he does. 2 Corinthians 4. He is the God of this age and he blinds the minds of the unbelieving. Isaiah 9.2, we also saw that Jesus Christ is the light that shines in the dark place because the adversary is the one who blinds the minds of the unbelieving. Well, that's going to come to an end. Isaiah 29.18 On that day the deaf will hear the words of a book and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind will see. What a day that's going to be. The fallen cosmos system is going to be replaced by the blessings of the Lord. The fallen cosmos system is going to be replaced by the blessings of the Lord. And boy, we can celebrate that. All right. From 17 down to the end of the chapter, down through verse 24, you can read that on your own. Matthew 5. Look at the similarities here. You almost see the Beatitudes. You almost see, for example, in verse 19, the afflicted also will increase their gladness in the Lord. The needy of mankind will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. As you're reading through these verses in Isaiah, it echoes in terms of Jesus Christ and the Beatitudes of Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the poor in spirit. All right. In fact, we learn that the, the whole Sermon on the Mount actually is coming out of the Old Testament prophecies of their promised kingdom. Sermon on the Mount is the constitution of the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. So it shouldn't shock us that we find the parallels here the way that we do. Isaiah 29 in parallel with Matthew 5, verses 3 through 12. Or how about 1 John 2, 15 through 17? This cosmos is passing away and along with it, it's lusts. Thank God for that. All right? Are you sick and tired of being sick and tired? Does it bug you to see what the world is doing, how they're redefining language, how they're redefining terms? Do you just hope that maybe in the next election we'll get the right kind of... Forget that. It's not about politics. It's not about elections. It's not about Supreme Court rulings. It's about Jesus Christ returning in power and great glory. Because according to His promise, 
We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Father, I thank you for your truth. I thank you for these studies. And they go by so quickly, Father. But I thank you that you expose us to these chapters. We're oriented to them. We at least have a a big picture view. We know there is so much more to come back and, and dig and dig and dig. And there's so much more, Father. Thank you for providing this. Thank you for giving us the length and width and height and depth. Thank you, Father, that you have provided a lampstand where the Word of God goes forth and is taught in such a manner. I pray, Father, that we would be humble before your truth, humble to receive the Word of God implanted that's able to save our souls. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for the truth of your Word. We're looking forward, Father, to the continuation, Father. This is, this is a, a different Sunday for us. We're not uh, going to close in prayer and then scatter to different places. We're going to remain here, Father. Uh, you've fed us spiritually. We're going to feast physically as well. And I thank you for that, Father. I pray that we might... Um, that the, the nourishment that that food supplies to us would be a blessing to our body's use, even as the, the nourishment of the spiritual food uh, provides health to our soul and our spirit. And Father, I pray that the encouragement of the Scriptures might edify one another as we fellowship in the things of the Lord. Father, just thank you for being so faithful. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.